Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Watts Radio. I'm Jeff. And I'm Hanji. And we'll be your hosts for this hour. This week on Watts Radio, it is the Trumpocalypse. It's unfortunate. Everyone's been pulling themselves together. And it turns out America did what no one thought we would do. We Brexited. Indeed. In, but it happened Trumpfully. Indeed it did, Jeff. Indeed it did. We, we just we just couldn't let the British have their way, so we had to trump them. <laughs> Actually, all the puns are making me sad. But no, really, we'll talk about, is this going to be a Trumpocalypse for climate and energy initiatives in the U.S.? Um, we'll also discuss current events in energy and uh, news in Morocco. Um, Jeff? Hanj? Stay with us. Stay with us. If you miss any of our Watts Radio episodes, make sure to check them out at wattsradio.org. So, Hanj, what's currently happening in the world? 
Well, Jeff, lots of things in energy and news in Morocco. Um, so uh, I don't know if you you heard, but there was some some news in Morocco this week. What's what's been happening in Morocco? Oh, you you didn't hear anything? I, I haven't heard anything. What's, Any what's, news in Morocco? No. What's the news in Morocco? Oh well, well they're going to do a series of energy efficiency upgrades for mosques. They're launching what's called a green mosque program, uh, which aims to convert fifteen thousand mosques by twenty nineteen, uh, with a series of energy efficiency upgrades and targeting lighting, uh, water heating, and uh, HVAC. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're, they're hoping to uh, basically, uh, you know, start a groundswell of uh, attention to um, energy efficiency and renewables um, by uh, uh, targeting these mosques. Wow. You know, that's pretty cool. But you know what else is pretty cool that I just realized is happening in Morocco right now? Wait, you said you didn't know anything that was happening yeah, in Morocco. Yeah, and then I, and then I you know— dwelled on it a little bit, and I, I thought of uh, cool things that are happening associated with climate change, and I realized that... Uh, cool things with climate change. Cool <laughs> things with climate change. That COP22, the Conference of Parties, the 22nd one, no less, is taking place this week in Marrakesh in Morocco. Um, so for those that don't know... Um, COP22, it's the biggest who's who event that happens apparently every year. Um, not always in Morocco, though. Last year it was in Paris. COP22, they have made 22 Beverly Hills cops. I mean, really, Bill, he, Eddie Murphy has got to be tired of these by now. Got to be tired. But no, COP22 is where all celebrities and the who's who people in the world of energy and climate get together, spill drinks, and talk about the actions that the world needs to take to address global climate change. You should stop climate. No, I should stop climate. No, we should stop it. So uh, last year, Paris, we, we got the Paris Agreement, which is the document that basically says nation states that sign on agree to take actions to keep temperatures below two degrees of temperature rise. So the U.S. has jumped on board with this, and that goes alongside Obama's uh, initiatives to combat climate change. Um, so COP22 was hoping to follow on those successes, uh, to be clear and inspiring, and to lead a path forward to severely addressing greenhouse gas emissions. Do, 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 do. Um, so this is all going down. And as this happened to be going down, the unfortunate event of electing Donald Trump occurred. But hmm. we'll talk about what that means a little bit later. GHGs. I love them. Put them on my luggage. Outside of U.S. politics, what else has been going on? Well, Jeff, do you, do you like coffee? Oh, actually, I'm more of a tea drinker, oh, frankly. Nobody's perfect, but keep trying, Jeff. I love coffee. And one thing that a lot of people love, but I don't, are those kind of single serve coffees the oh do you mean the k cups oh yeah the k cups oh the things that you know when i do have coffee end up in my trash can i look pretty depressed thinking there's got to be a better way like if only i brewed drip coffee i wouldn't have had this monstrosity and like me you could be like me and just brew drip coffee. In fact, I've seen these great videos. I would encourage, uh, if you feel so inclined, to visit a website near you and search for videos about K-Cups. Um, there's some very entertaining ones where they um, either take over the world or destroy cities. I like them both. Um, but no, really, actually, K-Cups and other single-serve coffee products have exploded in popularity and created a massive new consumer waste stream, and which unfortunately heads straight to the landfill or incinerator, depending on your local municipal waste system. Um, but luckily, a Canadian company is working with the world's largest single-serve coffee God pod. God bless the Canadians. They're very polite. They're very polite. Well, I mean, you know, and it's nice of them. 
<laughs> for them to create a recyclable and compostable cup made of biopolymers. Uh, it's a joint project with a local university, Jeff. You, I know you like bio things. I do like bio things. Well, anyway, this is a, an interesting, I mean, this seems like it could be promising. They're making it from a lot of different types of agricultural wastes. Um, they're expanding it out of a test market. Uh, it seems to be going pretty well. Um, and now, at least, I guess, um, as you kind of console yourself in your um, California, uh, <laughs> you can drink your K-cups um, as you live in a Donald Trump. How exciting. In other news, probably about the last positive thing in the federal U.S. government space to come out, maybe ever, about uh, climate action. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, uh, the U.S., uh, they, they decided, officials of the U.S. decided to cancel 15 oil and gas leases on Wednesday in an area bordering on Glacier National Park. Um, it's considered sacred by the Blackfoot tribes in the U.S. and Canada. And unlike the Dakota Access Pipeline, that didn't go through proper reviews um, for dealing with tribal lands, uh, these ones were canceled, um, which is great. Uh, so the cancellation arrived. It was aimed at preserving the Badger Two Medicine area. Um, it's largely undeveloped, 130,000 acres of wilderness, uh, all good things. Great. We're stopping pipelines. And... Hopefully this doesn't get undone. Yeah, hopefully. Although, you know, um, it seems like it might it should have never uh, been awarded in the first place. Um, so hopefully this isn't one of those ones that... But more about that later. Yeah, well, at any rate. Okay, so, you know, Jeff, I like trucks um, and cars. Trucks, I like trucks a lot. And uh, I'm excited about the uh, exciting future of autonomous vehicles. It's happening. It's coming. It's actually already here. They're here. The future is now, guys. The future is now. I just went out and I bought an autonomous vehicle. Yeah. I didn't. Maybe maybe in a year. Tomorrow is yesterday. The future is now. At any rate, maybe in China at least, because China is taking, maybe taking the lead on revolutionizing goods movement with autonomous trucks. And that is partly due to the lax regulatory environment. Um, so I was reading this article, Jeff, where about several Chinese-based companies that are working on automated trucks, um, sort of relying on these lenient regulations, as well as a desire to overhaul the country's chaotic trucking industry. And it seems that, you know, they are really uh, plowing forward with uh, trying to get this uh, technology on the road. That's exciting. Maybe that just goes to show you the free market economy can not only destroy environmental quality and air pollutions, but also spur all sorts of crazy cool things sometimes. Okay, Jeff, but this is actually a pretty big deal because there's 7.2 million trucks and 16 million drivers are responsible for inner city transportation goods, according to this company that's doing some work in the space. And uh, it's a basically a $300 billion industry of which about 40% of the costs are uh, incurred by truck companies are actually drivers. And in the U.S., labor costs for trucks can be, uh, for long haul trucking, can be as much as 60 or 70%. Uh, the, uh, op the operating cash flows. So um, these are really big costs. And, uh, you know, competition is really heating up in the space. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars going in. Um, the U.S., on the other hand, is kind of on the uh, is kind of sending mixed messages. On the one hand, uh, the, EP, uh, the EPA um, and some other regulators have kind of wanted to take a hands-off, while NHTSA, the Safety Administration, has sort of taken a more aggressive stance about um, regulating the uh, uh, 
the use of these vehicles on the road. Um, basically, uh, let me sum up this for a moment and just say there's going to be some massive impacts on employment uh, in the in the freight sector. It's true. I mean, it's not just the freight sector. Uh, we're increasingly automating everything. You know, one of the major drivers of manufacturing job loss in this country is due to automation. Um, so currently, the number one occupation in the U.S. is truck driver. Um, as automation increasingly becomes a thing, we're going to really start having to figure out how to deal with equity concerns uh, from automating people out of jobs. Exactly. And it's going to be a tale that's going to happen really fast. The economics are close. The technology is on the precipice. Um, and it's really just going to be, um, it's going to happen far too quickly that we're going to basically um, erase an, an entire other um, you know, uh, demographic of employment uh, within this country that, uh, quite frankly, might just create a new rust belt. <laughs> so, you know, on the bright side to all of that, when autonomous vehicles come and literally take jobs away, um, we, we do improve the economy. A lot of us benefit if we're not truck drivers. Um, but that's going to be happening under Trump's watch. And when the economy tanks due to automation, well, you know, maybe that's... Uh, uh, a motivating factor for some level of change. Excellent. Well, Jeff, uh, speaking of that, um, speaking of Trump, actually. Oh, man. I guess we're at that time period. So uh, right. renewable <laughs> energy stocks just took a doze knife. Knife doze? Mm, something something <laughs> probably in between those two. Um, yeah, no, Jeff. Uh, uh, pr uh, sorry. Um, uh, Heil Trump. Uh, yeah. Uh, Supreme Trump. Uh, as our his, fearless leader. Our fearless our, our, leader. He's made American presidency greater again. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm trying to think of a good term for this guy. I'll work on it. Um, Van, Von Clownstick. I always like that one. Um, at any rate, uh, his victory brought with it a uh, crushing defeat for renewable stocks uh, across the industry, both solar and wind, and, and breathed breathe new life into coal stocks that had been dying, slithering so, on the vine. President-elect Trump, Donald Trump, uh, president-elect, yes, we should actually recognize the fact that he is, in fact, going to be our president, for better or worse. Um, he's been very aggressive in his rhetoric on saying we need to restore and bring life back into the coal community. With that said, most people in the energy space recognize that there's just about nothing that Donald Trump can do to revitalize coal. Um, so coal is Clean not coal. on the decline necessarily because of renewables and aggressive support for them. No, coal is on the decline because of fracking. Um, and fracking is now the cheapest possible way to get energy. It actually turns out if you look at the economics, it's even cheaper to produce oil uh, crude oil and turn it into diesel using natural gas and upgrading the natural gas to a liquid fuel than it is to extract oil from the ground. Now, people aren't doing this because they have uh, risk concerns about the future. But anyway, natural gas is cheap, really, really cheap. And so natural gas is way out competing coal. It's more versatile. Your plants can go up and down and peak. The capital cost of building a new natural gas powered electric plant is really low. And so natural gas is what's destroyed coal. And if Trump is going to be conservative and a Republican and support the notion of free markets, coal's not coming back. Yes, Jeff. Coal has had a rough run, and it hasn't really been due to environmental policies. 
Unfortunately, it wasn't due to the massive destruction of communities from open top and, uh, or for, sorry, from mountaintop removal mining uh, and coal power plants across the Mideast, uh, Midwest. Um, no, actually, it was just, just straight economics. Coal was no longer the lowest cost option and so far, and then was kicked to the curb. But um, many of the coal's uh, hopes, or many people in the coal industry are feeling that, you know, their hopes are. Their hopes are being are about to their 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 ship's coming in, Jeff. It's coming in, and it says Trump. The ship is rising. Yeah. So anyway, I just I looked at some of these. I was looking at Google Finance. Uh, SunPower uh, went down about twenty percent on Wednesday uh, or last week by Friday, and this by this week actually First Solar was down over thirty seven percent. Um, so, I mean, that's just a, a huge amount of money that was erased. Um, the fundamental economics of solar did not change last week. Let me just put this this way. We are still having massive declines in the price of solar. Solar is still getting to be competitive at a utility scale with fossil generation. Anyway, in a anyway. nutshell, uh, coal, uh, hell continues to freeze over. Coal gets better supported. The coal ship is rising, still has a lot of holes, and is going to sink in another couple of days. Okay, well, Jeff, I just I thought you know this is actually something I was reading. There was a good, a nice little article on Fortune on this, um, and it was a nice take, basically saying that you know President Trump could make the U.S. energy independent by 2030 if he wanted to go in all in on renewables. Um, you know, so right now, even under current policies, the EIA, which is the uh, Energy Information Administration, uh, the U.S.'s uh, agency that looks at uh, energy consumption um, both domestically and abroad in their world outlook says that north that the US could probably meet demand with North American supply so that means domestic production plus Canada plus Mexico by 2040 and that 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 timetable could be accelerated by implementing more stringent efficiency standards to reduce petroleum consumption particularly in the transportation sector particularly in the heavy duty vehicle sector which um, is in, uh, driving a lot of petroleum use um, but unfortunately Jeff, I don't think that's very likely. Yeah, it turns out a lot of what Trump is pushing for is expanding ability to extract natural resources on American soils. Because that'll bring a lot of jobs that maybe, maybe will almost make up for a fraction of the jobs that we're going to start losing due to autonomous vehicles. Indeed. Uh, all right. Well, anyway, I like to get carried away with some hyperbole. Meanwhile, if uh, your week hasn't quite been dismal and depressing enough and you're listening to the show on energy and climate, uh, let's just jump into it. Trump's making everybody question climate change targets. Yeah, it's true. I think everybody woke up uh, Wednesday with the idea that, wow, are we really going to hit any of these things? Um, unfortunately, a lot of you know, a lot of things are already in the pipe, um, and we're based off of either agreements that were reached, i.e. Paris, um, or research that's been ongoing, uh, expecting certain policies to take place that now are in question. Um, so the IEA, not to be confused with the EIA, this is the International Energy Administration, uh, or agencies are, I think, right? Um, in uh, in Perry, uh, they just released their big annual forecast. Uh, it's it's a, it's a big report that considers world economic conditions, and often forecasts scenarios because they love scenarios um, about how we're going to stay under some climate target. So this year, you know, the two degree target that was arrived at Paris. Um, analysts obviously been slaving ahead of this on weeks, um, and during a press conference, of course, reporters asked several questions regarding how matters might change if President Trump kept his election promises. Uh, obviously, the analysts uh, and re were not 
uh, very anxious to discuss um, <laughs> the consideration of President Trump uh, in these. Um, and I guess we could ask ourselves uh, the real question. Is it a big deal? Um, do we think that uh, global climate agreements, global climate stabilization targets hinge on the executive branch of the United States of America? What do you think, Jeff? Do you think it's do you think it's make or break? Is Trump make or break well, for global climate targets? There is the notion that if the US doesn't join in to an international agreement, that sets precedence for nobody else to join in on these things. Um, so that's a pretty pessimistic view, which is Trump has stated very openly that he's going to do everything he can to withdraw the US from the Paris Agreement. Um, and that's bad news. However, this is putting a lot of stake in the fact that these agreements do things. Um, so there has been a lot of critique um, from people in the environment and energy space that the Paris Agreement doesn't even have targets that are that meaningful. So it uses language such as two degrees of temperature rise, but it doesn't say two degrees compared to what. The assumption has been for a lot of people, uh, pre-industrial levels or 1990 levels. Um, so that's not clear. Um, it's not necessarily binding. It says countries will take action. What those actions are, no one knows. Um, so the fact is this agreement doesn't have as much teeth as we would like it to. Um, so withdrawing from it, maybe doesn't do that much there. The other thing to realize is that there's a lot of market forces at play here. There's also a lot of policies that have bipartisan support across the board, and that Trump is only one person that doesn't control the entire country. Um, so renewable subsidies, they are well supported by both Republicans and Democrats to a large degree. It's one of the few things Obama has been able to support and continue to pass. Um, you have the ag lobby and the Corn Belt, um, in the Midwest that really supports subsidies for uh, biofuel. And then you have natural gas, which has been increasingly decarbonizing uh, most industrial sectors and anything reliant on coal. Um, so those things are all likely to continue happening. So within the short term, we might not see a huge difference from uh, Trump on these sort of short-term climate goals. Right. I, I totally agree. I think like, uh, I mean, Trump might revoke some of these uh, rules. Uh, he might make coal less competitive, but it's not clear that that really is going to change the game. Obviously, the underlying economics um, are not getting any better. And the risks and the lifetimes of these uh, assets um, are such that they're going to long outlast both a Trump presidency and, and frankly, a Trump lifetime if, uh, if anybody has anything to do with it. And, um, you know, the reality that is, uh, you know, you mentioned, Jeff, the U.S., it is a, a symbolic leader, um, at least in climate uh, change agreements and a symbolic leader as a uh, the leader of the free world, I guess. Um, but that doesn't mean it's actually the technical leader. You know, and Europe and Japan actually have been doing a lot. China is really ramping up. Um, I think there's there's hope. There's hope, Jeff. There's hope. Um, Jeffrey. Hanjuri. I think we've exhausted the current events. Well, whew, it's about time. Um, so there's a lot more coming up, but right now we think you need a quick musical break. At the very least, uh, you know, go make yourself a nice cup of tea, coffee, continue driving, just chill out and listen to some sweet tunes. When we come back, we're going to talk about 
what the Donald Trump transition will mean for the Department of Energy, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the Department of Transportation, the big sectors in the energy and climate space. So hang on in there. Welcome back to Watts Radio. If you've missed any of our episodes, be sure to tune in, check them out on the web at wattsradio.org. Now that you've had some good listening music and a little bit of time to recollect yourself, let's plunge into what the Donald Trump transition for our large executive offices are going to look like. This just in. Donald Trump elected president. Oh, yeah. Donald Trump, BT dubs, if you've been living under a happy place for the past week, other than um, in our current semi-liberal reality of California. um, Yeah, Donald Trump was elected as the president, and that means things are about to change. Uh, Cannot be that good. We'll Uh, see. So let's just- We'll see. It's going to be huge, huge changes. No, actually, you know, Jeff, I mean, I'm I'm not sure there's going to be big, giant changes. I'm not sure. But well, we'll see. That, that's that's the optimism. We can all be optimistic that maybe things aren't going to change. Or we can start looking at some of the cards that are starting to fall into place and make our evaluations from there. Before you dive into this, I really do think, I mean, you know, it might, it might behoove us to mention something about the structure of the federal government for those that might not understand that there are these giant significant agencies that operate within the federal government and command a lot of authority that operate under the 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 uh, the good graces, should we say, of the executive branch. Yeah. So when a new president comes in, they get to elect a bunch of people that govern all the little arms, legs, limbs, toes, you know, hair follicles that are loose from the government and try to grease the wheels into motion or non-motion if that's if that's their cup of tea. Um, and so the big 
big organizations in the U.S. that deal with energy and climate and control huge amounts of the budget and have thousands of staff members working under them, um, thousands of federal employees. Uh, the Department of Transportation, you're familiar with them for highways and roadways and cars and stuff. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, um, they do environmental protection work. They're the ones currently doing climate change actions at a national and federal level. And then we have the Department of Energy, which was traditionally rooted in its role for dealing with nuclear energy. And has since transitioned out of there a little bit, it supports uh, most of the government labs, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, Lawrence Livermore, uh, Oak Ridge, et cetera. Um, they are a huge research wing of the government. And they also do a lot of cool tech development and large tech deployment projects. And they manage the, and they manage the country's nuclear assets. Oh, and yeah, and they manage, manage all the country's assets. nuclear assets. Yes, and and of course, um, you know, uh, w one thing to be mentioned here is that actually, you know, these com these these agencies wield um, pretty incredible amounts of influence and power. But you know, actually, they don't wield. They don't actually have huge budgets. It's not like they manage huge amounts of budget. I mean, think about it. Like the majority of federal spending is is actually just in entitlement programs and in DOD. Um, so if you kind of take all those aside, then yeah, of course, some of these things then things get really big. But um, not to say that these aren't big amounts of money. Yes, and it is thousands and thousands of people. Um, but anyway, I actually I bring that up because I feel like they need way more money. Um, that's why. Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely need way more money. So the annual budget for the Department of Energy is only about thirty billion. The Department of Transportation's about seventy, eighty billion. Um, EPA, well, that budget's about to go away. Um, yeah, it's exactly. it's it's around eight billion for the EPA. Yeah. So so in total, that's um, like about one hundred and ten, hundred and twenty billion dollars of out of a you know federal spending in comparison to DoD, which is probably you know closer in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, so at any rate, uh, DOT is one of my favorites because I like transportation. Uh, yeah. So what's going on with the DOT, Jeff? What's going on with the DOT? So Trump hasn't yet fully selected who's going to fill uh, Secretary of Transportation position in his cabinet. Um, so maybe good news, maybe not, but it's probably going to come down to a couple of choices. One of the leading choices for it right now is uh, Representative John Micah. Um, he worked in Washington for a while. He's the was in the House of Representatives from Florida. He was just defeated in this past election to a Democrat. So hey, that's something. So he's right now and open as a pick for uh, Secretary of Transportation. Um, so what has he done? What are his big successes? Is he qualified for this job? And what might we uh, uh, expect from him or from the Transportation Department in the future? So um, he has had some successes, quote unquote successes. Uh, um, when he was um, chairman of the House Transportation Committee. So that's basically in the House of Representatives, the people that figure out what bills and packages they're going to pull together that impact transportation and infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, so his major thing is he pa passed uh, Moving Ahead for Progress in the 21st Century. It's a bill called MAP 21. A lot easier to say. Um, basically what his goal was to cut red tape uh, that's preventing us from building vital infrastructure to improve our roadways economy and make things safer, more efficient, make stuff better. So that passed uh, by cutting um, bureaucracy, the red tape, and improving efficiency. What he really meant was getting rid of uh, environmental oversight. Um, so Map 21 did have some pretty 
decent impacts on the environmental review process for infrastructure. Um, who knows uh, what the outcomes of that have been. It's maybe sped stuff up, but it's also made it easier to get stuff through that is environmentally detrimental. Um, not that great. It also really defunded what little federal money we had to support alternative mobility. So that's bike and pedestrian infrastructure. Um, so that was his big success. He also really pushed for tolling on federal highways. Um, and he's a pretty big proponent of uh, supporting roadway infrastructure. So with him leading the Department of Transportation, that means we'll probably have a pretty big continuation on trying to expand uh, roads and capacity, which means more cars, cars on the road, more emissions, um, less pedestrian and uh, alternative mobility bike infrastructure. Wow, um, Jeff, that was quite the soapbox. That was like a very solid soapbox there. You were you were you were big in Map Twenty One land. You went you went way down into map weeds. I went I went into the map. You weeds. know, Map Twenty One. I feel like also just got a very 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 bad rap um, in that, which it is. You know, yes, okay, maybe it's not great, but at the same time, you know, um, how often does the Fed really pass any type of transportation bill that has any type of forward looking thing that goes at all beyond highway capacity? Um, it was actually like really a breakthrough to have anything that talked about, you know, a multimodal system or any type of resilient freight. Um, I think that Map 21, you know, anyway, it gets a bad rap, but it's not all terrible. So uh, <clears throat> that that was passed by, uh, or the, the effort to pass that was spearheaded by uh, John Micah, who might be the Secretary of Transportation, which honestly, in terms of possible candidates that we've been hearing about, that Trump is looking to fill his uh, top executive positions, um, maybe not the worst pick. Right. So um, also probably not the best pick if you're really into, you know, liberal ideologies with transportation better connecting land use planning and development with walkable, sustainable, multi-use communities. Okay, well, you know, we we know that that ship has now sailed, Jeff. So, um, and, you know, I think we should actually save the worst for last. So, you know, in the at the Department of Energy, um, Jeff, uh, we, we also have some in, we have some uncertainty. Um, actually, DOE, DOT has a lot of uncertainty, but there's, it seems like there's fewer options. Um, DOE, uh, we have no idea what's going on. Um, There's probably two or three options um, right now that we know or that seem to be leading the choices. And these guys are pretty deeply rooted in the oil and gas and fossil industry. Well, yes. I mean, we, these these three picks are um, the who's who of people that the American Enterprise Institute would like to run, the, like Department of Energy or the EPA. Um, we have a billionaire uh, from North Dakota, or sorry, we have a, a billionaire from Oklahoma, uh, an oil tycoon, uh, Harold Hamm. Uh, Harold Hamm. You know, the guy is almost exactly like you would expect with a name like that. Um, he's made his billions. He's one of the richest people in the world. I think he was on the top 100 list for most wealthy. Damn. I need to double check that. And, um, you know, he is really pretty bullish on oil, as you would expect from a guy that's made his money on it. Um, so that falls right in line with climate denial. Um, so Ham leading the Department of Energy, uh, probably trying to do as much as possible to wield the department to better support fossil resources. Um, so what that might look like is relooking at the possibility of turning coal into liquid fuels, 
um, looking to drill and improve leasing options on federal lands, probably looking to open up as many of their, our national reserves and public spaces for this. So like Anwar and Alaska, maybe not off limits anymore. Um, so that's maybe what you get with a pretty big oil guy. Yep, at least that much. And, you know, I don't think any of the other guys look any better here. So <coughs> North Dakota rep Kevin Kramer, um, who is also a, a former Bush administration official um, and was a, a heavy proponent of uh, fracking, obviously. He's uh, uh, from uh, North Dakota. He's on the Public Service Commission up there. So he actually has experience with the government, which is more than we can say about half of the people that Donald right. Trump seems to be favoring. Mm -hmm. um, so he was with the Public Service Commission, and they're the people that deal with uh, electricity regulation, especially with the regulated um, investor-owned utilities. Um, so they kind of get to decide what investor-owned utilities can do. They also look at pipeline infrastructure. And it's North Dakota, so they're pretty big proponents of our old fossil resources. In fact, the shale boom in America uh, for oil, you can really point your finger at North Dakota for that one. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, DOE. DOE. Doesn't look pretty good. Pretty fun. So yeah. probably going to be pretty fossil rich. Yeah. And I mean, DOE, uh, if you've ever been to the Department of Energy in D.C., it's not a fun building. Um, we had a friend who worked there. He used to complain about it a lot. Um, I think it just got less fun. Maybe a little less fun. A little less fun. So, Jeff, we saved the worst for last. Um, this is this is really big, actually, because um, you know the EPA is kind of uh, it's a it's a small agency in some ways, but it's a big agency in that its impact is felt very widely. Um, it's really the last bastion, like preventing total destruction of the local environment. Well, I mean. Yes and no. So the EPA does have a lot of things going for it. Um, the big two things really that the EPA does is it deals with the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And so these were pieces of legislation that were passed that basically says we need to do something to clean up our air and water quality. Um, and so over time, the EPA has addressed these things through various um, regulations. Um, so the National Ambient Air Quality Standards are a big one for air, where they regulate criteria pollutants, which is good. I mean, regulating emissions, criteria emissions have very direct, clear, adverse health impacts at a local level. Um, and so the EPA has, in the past, received a fair amount of bipartisan support. Um, people do recognize that environmental toxicity is a bad thing. And so the EPA has been in charge of dealing with that, addressing it. And usually they go through a regulate lawsuit kind of framework where a lot of lawsuits happen, which kind of spurs the EPA into action. Um, so the other big thing that the EPA has recently been tasked with is climate change. Um, and so that was through a Supreme Court ruling. The EPA is uh, authorized to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And through various lawsuits, pretty much they're going to be obligated to at some point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, at any rate, I, I think that uh, the important part about this is, Jeff, is not so much that the jurisdictional capabilities of EPA, which obviously are important, but um, actually the fact that Right now, uh, Donald Trump has very, very, I guess, openly one of the one of the few people that we have any real knowledge about is this person who's been picked to head the transition team um, for EPA. 
Myron Ebel, though, is a well-known climate skeptic, and uh, uh, he's a member of the Commercial Enterprise Institute or the Cooler Heads Coalition. Anyway, he's he's a uh, um, he's not only a, a climate skeptic; he also is uh, testified before Congress about how um, you know uh, the National Environmental Policy Act is really meaningless, and that the EPA um, is. Uh, uh, is a bunch of climate alarmists. Um, so uh, I think that what and he's he's just basically a well-known skeptic of the climate. And um, the problem here is that uh, if a vision comes from the top down in these organizations, and if you have somebody at the top who says climate change is not a real thing, or climate change is not something we should be really pursuing, um, that is has a chilling effect at every level of the organization. At any rate. So, so you know, at best, we do no worse than the Bush years. <laughs> mm. um, at worst, we're going to have a major overhaul of a lot of our policies, and we'll be looking to no national federal action to take place that addresses climate change at a meaningful level. Um, so that's not good news. Um, so with that said, Music I time, think Jeff. we'll play you some cool listening tunes, and then we'll talk to some other experts at a more, uh, during, during a more happy time in American society. All right, hang in there. Um, and currently I'm an energy economist working at the Australian National University at the Crawford School of Public Policy. And today we're going to talk about energy, macroeconomics, policy, and a lot of other things. Let me ask a couple of more basic questions so that we can better ground our listeners in some things. So one, what exactly is macroeconomics and what are the major questions in terms of energy that macroeconomists might deal with? When macroeconomists look at energy, so what we're actually looking at the big picture um, about how is energy related to, to economic growth and how that has been changing. So are there patterns and how those patterns have been changing over the past years? Are there patterns that hold across many countries or across cross sections? And uh, what are the implications of those patterns? Uh, the possible implications of those patterns for the future. So that's that's basically what we are looking at. You know, we do talk about this, and and Susanna, we've talked about this on the show before. That um, you know, we know that uh, rich countries use more energy 
um, and uh, poor countries tend to consume less energy. Um, you know, is has this always been the case? Is it possible that it, we can change it? Well, it is generally the case, I would say so. So this is one of the things that we would call stylized facts of energy and economic growth. So if you look at the picture at large, if you look at the past 40 to 50 years and approximately 100 and 130 countries, this is exactly what we are seeing. So energy use per capita tends to increase with GDP per capita increases. So as countries get richer, they use more energy per capita. So we often talk about the instance where the developing world has been able to avoid the need for landlines and has been able to go directly towards decentralized um, cell towers. Um, so can a similar thing happen with uh, decentralized solar energy displacing the need for grid electricity? When energy transitions happen, it would depend on many things. It would depend on the availability of technology. It would be depend on the availability of resources. And if you've got sun, you've got solar resources, naturally. It will depend on the infrastructure. But if you say it's localized, you might not need infrastructure. What you will need is investments. And what you will need is institutions. What you need is um, private property rights. So... Um, Yes, it has a potential. It can develop. No, I do not actually know it, whether it will develop or not. What is an energy transition? So when, when you talk about energy system transitions, you can think of the massive transition from wood to coal during the Industrial Revolution or before the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s, and then changing that coal system to a fossil fuel or oil dependent system. So it's not only necessary uh, for the energy to change or the, the source of the energy to change, but you also uh, have to have a change in the technological system and in the infrastructure that is accompanying this energy. You've previously indicated that wealthier countries are the ones that are using more energy and are the ones maybe motivating some of these changes. But isn't it possible that instead when countries gain better access to energy, it facilitates economic growth within their countries. I am very, very um, careful using the verse causation uh, simply because uh, what I would like to talk about is correlation, and correlation is not causation. Um, there have been many studies looking at whether there is a causal relationship between energy and GDP or versus GDP and energy, and there have been several hundreds of studies. now. The results are completely inconclusive. Recently, at least in the United States, we've started to see a trend where we can use uh, less energy and still grow our GDP, right? So the economy in the U.S. has been fairly robust the past several years, and we've been seeing a decline in our energy use per unit of GDP that we've been having. So is this a sign of greater decoupling? Can we eventually get away from this link between uh, energy use and economic growth? Or is this just a short-term thing? You are not necessarily seeing the same decoupling that the United States has when you look at the pattern of the world as a whole. However, there is something very special about the United States. And uh, it is that the United States, along with the United Kingdom, for example, was an early industrializer. So uh, I have been trying to think about this question, and I think one of the reasons um, that, for example, United States energy use per capita today is lower than it was in 1967 is that the U.S. started out with a very high energy use per capita 
for its GDP per capita level. So when, when the U.S. had a low GDP per capita level, it had still much, much higher energy use per capita than the rest of the world for the same GDP per capita level. So what we're seeing is that uh, the energy intensity of the U.S. was very, very large in the 1800s. And as energy intensity, for example, converges on the long run because we see convergence uh, unconditional convergence in energy intensities throughout the world and this also in the medium run and in the long run what we're seeing is that even though the United States is growing its total energy use is sort of like stagnating thus the energy intensity is improving access to electricity is positively correlated with a lot of good develop a lot of important development indicators right like health like life expectancy and literacy and lifetime earning potential if not necessarily you know we don't understand the causal relationship with gdp but you know the case is that about a quarter of the world's population still live with intermittent access to electricity and you know more developed energy sources and many people in those countries spend you know 30% of their time or more you know 3 to 4 hours a day gathering energy you know and i think that um it's it's interesting to think about how also there's this you know uh incredible switch of leisure time right when you have these more advanced energy sources that people don't need to spend their entire day you know getting the energy and calories they need for life so i wonder if maybe in the long run there's there's you know some feedback that we can't quite assess very well there's this idea that Capitalism has it wrong because economic growth forever is unsustainable. Um, so there's there's been a lot of talk about moving over to zero growth economies and zero growth societies. Um, is this something that realistically seems possible? Is it a complete fairy tale? Um, and if we were to move over to these kinds of zero growth societies economically, uh, what would that mean in terms of energy utilization? And would that improve our chances of uh, stabilizing at a two-degree goal for uh, climate change. So my, um, I'm probably a mainstream economist in this respect, so I, I, I do not believe in zero growth, I, I really have to say. So probably we are going to grow, and we will be keeping growing. Now, can we use less resources is a very good question because certain policies can be done to aim to use less resources. Of course, you cannot simply stop using resources, but uh, the way that you mentioned, for example, when you use renewable resources, this is something that's renewable. So you're not actually depleting anymore the coal or the oil or any other um, resource, uh, but you're using something renewable, you're getting more efficient, although there is also a limit to technical efficiency, how much you can uh, technically um, do, but I think that there is a lot of potential in many countries um, to increase energy efficiency from transportation to housing to a, to a lot of issues. And when you're increasing energy efficiency and you're doing the necessary steps, including, for example, building or producing more efficient equipment, that's also going to produce actually economic growth. But you can get more efficient. So yes, it is possible to get more efficient in my view. And it's very important to get more efficient and to study those policies that would actually bring the societies in this area. But um, I, I don't think simply because technological change is happening and technological improvement is happening, you're not going to get zero growth. And nor are you going to completely uh, stop using resources or completely decouple it. There's all these 
examples of small studies doing looking at rebound in particular areas. I wonder if you could just speak to that with respect to policies that pursue um, ever higher efficiency gains. Yes, rebound effect is happening. So just quickly to explain what rebound effect is, uh, you get much more efficient. So uh, right now you've got a light bulb that is or anything that's uh, far more efficient and you start using less energy. But because you're using less energy, you've got some much more disposable income because you have that disposable income. You're going to say, oh, let's just burn that light bulb for an hour more. Uh, that means you're going to use more energy. That's what we classify direct rebound. Or you're taking your extra dollars uh, that's left over from your energy bill and you're going to buy some nice shoes, but you also need energy to produce those shoes. So that, that would be approximately the rebound effect. And we do know, for example, that developing countries have a higher rebound effect than developed countries or tend to have a higher rebound effect currently. Um, how much energy efficiency policies, uh, when, when policies promote energy efficiency, and how much is the rebound on the energy efficiency? That's a very difficult question to, to answer. There are estimates on direct rebounds and there are estimates on macroeconomical rebound effect. But how to get around those rebound effect is, is currently something that's, that's really a good research topic. I think actually many, I think many organizations, when they say uh, energy efficiency is going to be the key to uh, reducing emissions uh, compared to business as usual, I think many organizations don't calculate with the rebound effect, by the way. So renewable energies are lower density, right? So to have a wind farm, you need to take up much more area um, to collect the same amount of energy or electricity you would be able to generate with a much more dense facility like a large thermoelectric plant. So same goes for solar where you need a large quantity of area to collect the same density, the same amount of energy that you would use for uh, what we're currently using today. So from that standpoint, it seems that renewable energies and some of this more modern technology that we're talking about transitioning to, it's lower density um, whereas in the past, we switched over from wood and low-density energy sources to more dense energy sources. So how can we transition to a less dense energy source when it seems to contradict what we've historically done? Renewable energies, such as solar or wind, are somehow, I think, have this inherent energy security quality to them. So it's not something you're importing. It's not something that um, could somehow be cut off um, in, in any crisis situation. So there is this political issue of, yes, it is less dense, but it's also energy secure because we have it and the wind's tending to blow and the sun is tending to shine. This is one other thing. And they are, of course, much more carbon neutral, which is, again, a good thing to do or a good thing to, to have. I think if you look, for example, at the uh, case of Germany, they have been just, uh, they just decided to limit the amount of wind farms that you can build in the north of the country. So Germany was actually the shining example of energy transitions to renewable energy, at least in electricity generation. And it turned out that their policy was so successful that much of these um, windmills were generating electricity, electricity that the grid could not take up. So this is what I'm always saying, that when you have an energy transition, you also need to have a technological transition and an infrastructural transition, because what do you do? Either you change your grid system to be able to cope with a lot of fluctuating energy 
or you go and you put your future into energy storage and means okay there's a lot of wind or solar right now i'm going to store the energy and then the shine uh, the sun's not shining or the, there is no wind i'm going to use the energy do consumers have much price elasticity uh for energy consumption and does it differ across energy sources like electricity versus transportation fuels something would be high elasticity that i would need uh, i would say that if there is one percent increase in gdp you would be also using one percent more energy so the different um sectors of the economy has actually have actually different energy uh, gdp elasticities uh for example when you look at residential uses or agricultural those already have a much lower now depending on how you estimate it uh it just means that uh, the energy use is responding far less to changes in gdp use when it's lower or for example electricity, the elasticity of uh, energy used to GDP uh, is already much higher. As an economist, I really don't know how to tell you to make your best economist sound. I could bring my purse and red lit, you know, to, to hear the money, the coins, you know, clashing. Oh, the money, the, the coins clashing. <laughs> That's the sound of an economist. Obviously, I, I can't get a um, oil pipeline right into into the room and to have some oil tripping out of it. So um, I think we just have to stick to the coins. Did you <laughs> always know you wanted to be an economist? No, actually, it, it came quite late. Uh, I did something completely different. I did finance for uh, quite a lot of time. And um, at some point in my life, I decided there has to be more to life than that. And that is when I decided that uh, it's going to be economics. Um, so would you say that economics is the most dismal of all things one can do? Oh, I think economics is beautiful. Why should it be more dismal? Rumor has it it's a dismal science. Does it? Yeah. That's well, I think it's a question of perception. Like tastes um, differ, you know, so are quite subjective, which is a good thing because imagine everybody would have the same taste. What would that mean for supply and demand? Thanks for taking time to talk to us, Susanna. Yeah, this thanks. is terrific. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day, and thanks a lot.